I'm looking for in Horizon, is there any model other than democracy for us to pay attention to, try to illuminate, so that we can save as many people as possible? I often ask people, stop trying to make common cause with your age mates. Take every bit of intelligence, every bit of imagination that you have in this moment and offer it to young people. Coming up on In Contrast, Barry Lopez. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Barry Lopez is the author of 16 books of both fiction and nonfiction. Described by the San Francisco Chronicle as the nation's premier nature writer, Lopez won the National Book Award in 1986 for Arctic Dreams and was a finalist for Of Wolves and Men. Lopez has traveled extensively to remote regions of the world, an experience that he chronicles in his most recent book, Horizon. Barry Lopez joined us from the studios of KLCC in Eugene, Oregon. We'll begin with a reading from Horizon, a work that explores Lopez's travels from his home in western Oregon to the Arctic, from the Galapagos to the Kenyan Desert, and from Australia to Antarctica. As far back as I can remember, I've had a deep fear of being caught in hurricane weather or heavy seas out of sight of land. Even though I've found the sea seen from shore in almost any weather mesmerizing and soothing, Perhaps its primary attraction has been its breadth, like a stages, or the unbroken line of its meeting with the sky, or its inconstancy, or the transparency of its colors from the dark purple of prunes through tropical blues to the green of the verdigris that forms on oxidized copper. Once in Camden, Maine, walking its waterfront with a friend, the painter Alan McGee, I saw in a shop window a perfectly crafted scale model of a whaleboat, the type of longboat with a stepmast that whalers would have worked from, though I didn't know about this at the time. I bought the model because it was beautiful and because it had been built with near-microscopic attention to detail, the coiled lines, the oarlocks, the rigged harpoons, It was fashioned out of someone's love and perfect knowledge. I wanted it in the room where I worked, next to a model of an airplane that I had loved as a child, the Martin M-130. Today, the boat resides in my workroom in a glass box to keep dust from settling in its many small cavities. It's an image for me of courage, even of security. For a long while after I purchased it, I was not able to imagine the boat in the sort of seas I knew whalers had encountered or to regard it as anything but unsafe. One day, this perception changed in the Drake Passage, that corridor of notoriously wild water that separates the tip of South America from the Antarctic Peninsula. On that day, I learned about a kind of beauty I had not until then been able to grasp, It was aboard a large ecotourism vessel with 130 other people trying to reach the leeward shore of South Georgia, 750 nautical miles southeast of Port Stanley, 
our point of departure in the Falkland Islands that day before. The ship, the Hanseatic, was weathering a Beaufort Force 11 storm, sustained winds over 55 knots, chaotic seas of 40-foot waves, with some 50-footers breaking over the upper decks. Hardly a spot on the surface of the water was not blanketed with sea foam. Sometimes the bow of the Hanseatic was entirely buried in a wall of water. It geysered through the anchor chain's hawse holes and crashed against the windows of the bridge. For some reason, I decided this was the time for me to address my old fear. I stepped outside on a lee deck just below the bridge with a trusted friend, the polar explorer Will Steger. Dressed in storm gear, we stood together in the cauldron of soaking air, listening to the shrieking wind tear through the superstructure. We quickly hunkered in the shelter of a companionway with our feet spread and with death grips on the railing. We watched in astonishment as albatrosses, forty feet away, navigated the chaotic wind like Olympic snowboarders, glancing over to make eye contact with us as they did. I turned at one point to see the stern of the 403-foot ship rise from the water and swing 30 feet to port. The only stillness here was the steel deck directly under our feet, which carried the shudderings of the ship as it crested a wave into our thighs. Sometime into this spectacle, I realized I was relaxed. The thoughts were unfurling in my head in a normal way, without panic or anxiety. What had for so long been an image of terror for me was now an image of something else, a kind of perfection. Here was Earth's fundamental wildness. Here was William Blake's sense of the divine in chaos. A well-traveled friend of mine, when I told him of my fear of encountering big seas offshore, had said to me of just such a storm he'd been through in the Drake Passage. I saw the face of God. When I got home from that trip, I looked differently at the whaleboat in its glass case. Its oars were shipped, its sails were raised, no human figure is aboard. I now sense the daring in its architecture. Imagine the seamanship that would keep it from capsizing in heavy weather. I could appreciate more deeply its integrity, which is chiefly what made it attractive. The subtlest memory of that hour I spent watching the storm from one of the Hanseatic's upper decks is that by standing that close to a force that might easily have killed me if I became inattentive, I'd felt both a sense of gratitude for still having, at the age of 57, a life I could lead, and a sense of forgiveness for the harm any random person might do to another. In those minutes of gazing at the boiling cistern of waves and watching the albatrosses addressing the storm with great seriousness, I could fix only on what I admired most often in other human beings, their enduring grace and their poise. As I look back on Cook's experiences in the Pacific and look at the model of the M-130 sitting in my studio, and consider my fascination with the nautical details of Cook's resolution, I can see that I have spent much time in my life thinking about such conveyances. When the time comes, what sort of person will be at the helm for us? And how will we know 
whether we can trust this navigator. Barry Lopez, it is a real pleasure to have you here in in Contrast. Thank you, Ilan. Glad to be here. I want to start with a question that was in my mind as I read your book, Horizon, and that is the difference between a traveler like you, a lifelong traveler, and a tourist. How does the traveler see the world that is different than the tourist? I don't know that you see a different world than someone else might. I believe the difference might be that I'm almost always on, if you know what I mean. I'm paying attention to details against a generalized background. If I notice something that attracts my imagination, I will walk right to it and ask about it. I don't have a thesis when I travel. I just have the curiosity and am guided by respect for the world around me. I try to consciously not impose any kind of hierarchy. I'm not looking at my watch all the time, and I'm not anticipating that I will see any particular thing. So I try to make myself vulnerable to the landscape or the city or whatever it is I'm moving through with the hope that I will thereby establish some kind of intimacy. Tourism is a relatively recent phenomenon, though travel is not. And it is an industry that even when someone like you so adept at bringing us readers to whatever landscape you are, enable us to understand the mechanics, the idiosyncrasy, the metabolism of that landscape, it seems that it's unavoidable that the tourists are somewhere nearby, though not often, sometimes never acknowledged by travelers like you, and maybe engaging with that environment in a way that is noxious or destructive. Is there too much tourism today? Are we in danger of having turned the act of traveling into such a restless effort in going from one place to another that we're actually destroying the environment? Well, those are strong words, Ilan, but I agree with what you've said. Many places I was visiting 40 years ago are now, for me, impossible to visit because of the crowds. Everybody looking for a sensation there that they read about in a magazine, for example. Most of my travel, uh, I mean, inevitably you go through cities and I go to places like Singapore, for example, or Adelaide and Australia to go to conferences, literary conferences. And so I see the city there really more a place awash in tourism. I'm hesitant to be too critical about tourism because it's, as you say, superficial and often looking for some kind of jolt. And tourists, by definition, are short-term residents. If I criticize tourism, though, I begin to sound like an elitist, and I don't want to send that message. So what I say is my preference, if I can arrange it, is to go to places that are largely unvisited. So they don't have the tourism infrastructure like you would find at Giza or in the Vatican. Where I go, not very many people go. 
And of course, ethically, it makes me wonder if I write well about this place, am I contributing to the destruction you allude to? I know that in the past, writing about remote places, I've returned years later and find them jammed with tourists, many of whom are carrying a book I wrote. <laughs> so I feel implicated in the tourism business. The question, frankly, that I have is, where does all of this money come from when thousands and thousands and thousands of people are filling airplanes and landing one airplane after another at Heathrow or you know, Charles de Gaulle or whatever, pick an airport, you know, in Europe or North America or the Caribbean. There are thousands of people coming, and it's not cheap. You're paying 100 or $200 a night for a room. Meals are expensive, and yet people do this all the time. I'm embarrassed by my contribution to tourism, if I can say that, but it wouldn't stop me from going. I think of having to go through a portal in a large city, going to Tokyo, for example, and then taking a plane a short distance to Hokkaido, and parts of Hokkaido are just as wild as parts of Oregon where I live. There are bears there, and it's a historied place, and I can get lost in the woodwork there. You're asking where the money comes from. Is this because we have put ourselves in such a position that there is dispensable money and that accumulating so-called experiences outside of our own immediate realm becomes some sort of capital that we can show off to others? Is that what the tourist industry is about? Let me tell you how many places I have been, how many selfies I have taken, how many strangers I have looked at, and then successfully have been able to come home to show you that selfie and to tell you about that experience. I don't know what to say about that. I do think you've put your finger on something that a lot of tourism has got an air of desperation about it. People are eager to have the celebrated experience one way or another. The mantra to go to Hawaii in North America no one is talking within my hearing about the history of Hawaii. I would say 98% of Americans don't know that Hawaii was a monarchy taken over by the United States military at the request of sugarcane growers and pineapple growers who wanted the monarchy destroyed and wanted to annex the Hawaiian Islands for uh, reasons of profit. We don't talk much about that in American history courses, but I can assure you Native Hawaiians talk about it all the time. So if you're going to Hawaii to surf and get a tan, and you don't know anything at all about the history of Hawaii and the American takeover, something is not really working there for me. And again, you know, I'm saying that as an elitist, I've been to Hawaii many times, and what right do I have to criticize those who are just looking for a good time? I don't know, but I think the erosion of respect for Hawaiian people and for the Hawaiian landscape is a direct result 
of people who are just looking for another theme park to play in. You not only travel to isolated places or to corners that are seldom visited, but you travel with words. One gets the impression, again as a reader, that you are out in the world experiencing it, but through the prism or through the lens of a writer that in the very act of being there is probably already thinking how that is going to be narrated. I want to ask you about that jump from the actual being there, looking at things, experiencing, talking to people, reading about the past, exploring the landscape, and turning it into a narrative. Does that feel to you at any point as a distancing of the effort, or does that guide the effort in some ways, pushing you to see things in that very moment in a way that you know will be useful for the way you describe it? I don't think I'm ever thinking about a narrative. I'm not thinking about, for example, asking myself, how am I going to make sense of this? My primary focus is simple attentiveness. And I've been doing this, you know, for nearly 50 years. When I go someplace, I can feel myself turn on and turn off a kind of intense paying of attention. I can't do it all the time. Nobody could. You'd be exhausted by the end of the day. But I do sense when I see something that it's part of whatever narrative is going to grow out of the experience. And so at those points, I tend to bear down and write all of the details down that I can, knowing that two weeks later, I will have forgotten some of those details. So the narrative, at least for me as a writer, is something that's subliminal. I don't really know about it, and I'm waiting for the sensations to generate a narrative peculiar to those details. And I see myself as just a recorder. And of course, at the end of a trip, I think, oh, I wished I had gone and seen this. But you know, not very often, because I don't trust myself having a goal or a point that I want to make. I could say absolutely in my fiction, I don't want to know where the story is going. I don't want to know what the characters are doing. I just want to make sure that I'm following the lead that the characters give me. And in nonfiction, if I had an organization that made me dismiss one thing or another, I don't think I'd be able to write the way I do. I don't know what is going to count in the end until I sit down at the typewriter, in my case, and try to find a narrative thread that organizes everything. I've said to writing students, young young writers, that in writing nonfiction, there are some things you can control and others you can't, and you should be paying attention across the board to everything. You'll find that some of the hard work is doing the basic research, tedious airplane flights, sickness of one sort or another when you're in a new environment. All of that is hard work. Sometimes it feels like you're in heaven, but other times it's just hard work. And then writing the piece is the second part of 
the puzzle to be solved to find the narrative thread that is strong. And I think among the most important parts of the second process, the writing, is the obligation to discover a structure that will hold the material weightlessly. You're talking about love or truth or any of the really big issues that human beings deal with. In order to communicate with another human being, with the reader, you can't bring the full weight of that thought to the page. It staggers the reader, and if it gets thick and dull, the reader is no longer interested. So you've got to find a way to communicate complex information that feels weightless to the reader. So it's the discovery of the structure of the narrative that's the key to writing a good piece about anything in particular. Does the act of writing, the act of finding that structure, is that pleasurable to you? Oh, it's the most, well, I was going to say it's the most exciting part, and maybe it is, but I find that the arc of ecstasy peaks often in that research phase, the sort of pounding of the heart when you see something or you read something that you know is connected to the mysterious narrative that you're trying to uncover. But I would say most of my rewriting, I will draft a piece and then go back from word one to the last word, every word, four, five, or six times to try to ensure that it becomes beautiful, that all of the parts fit together. There's no sentence or word that's not doing its work in terms of being writing as an art. But I experienced a similar moment of ecstasy when I can finally get the music of a particular paragraph to work well. It's not like Finnish carpentry, where you want every piece to fit seamlessly together, because there you're working sometimes from blueprints. I have no blueprint. And I sometimes will be halfway into a paragraph and think, no, 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 this is all wrong, and go back to the first sentence in the paragraph and try to get the rhythm of it. I hear what I write, and I write in some part as though I were a composer working with tones. So sometimes I'll use a word that might not be defensible in the sentence for logical reasons, but it's carrying the music, and that's what I mean about every word doing its job. How do you recognize as the composer, using the metaphor that you were bringing forth, that the music is there, that the music is having the rhythm, the syncopation, the vivacity that you are striving for? It's obvious that it's not there to start with, but after I've been over it and over it and over it and I hear the sound of everything in my head, then I say something to myself, in effect, I can live with that or that's good or I'll never make this any better. I think that from talking to younger writers that maybe they don't have the same feeling about the need to rewrite, the need to make the music apparent. And so I always say, well, you know, before we wrote books, we spoke them. We had oral cultures, and the storytellers had to remember an enormous amount of material, 
And one of the ways that they did that was to create musical structure that generated the memory of that part of the story. So I think that's still in play in 2019. I think, without knowing it, that the right music makes the point stronger or more strongly. So this isn't something of perfection, you know. It's not like saying this and only this sequence of tones will work. But it's getting it to the point where knowledge is being generated by something other than the connective tissue between the words. There's something moving it along that tells you what you want the reader to know, which is, yes, we are going somewhere, and reassure them that they're in the middle of a piece of literature and not a newspaper report. I'm flattering myself by saying it's a piece of literature, but that's what I strive for, is to please the reader, that the music of the piece must please the reader. And it can't just be a logical sequence of words, which very often is quite dull. Still in the topic of the art of writing and of travel writing and of nonfiction writing, you don't write your pieces ever in the place that you have just visited. You take the notes and then you go back to maybe home or somewhere else, and there is a spatial, a temporal, and maybe a memory distance from the experience itself. Or do you ever actually sit down and churn and, and hammer out with your typewriter the narrative in the Galapagos, in Antarctica, or wherever you might find yourself? I know a moment will come when I will say, for whatever reason, I've had enough. I can't absorb any more. I've got too much material to work with. So, yes, I leave the area and go home. I, I've written 99% of what I've written in my adult life. I've written in my house, which is in the woods and relatively isolated. And I've lived in that house for 49 years. So it's a familiar landscape to me. I feel comfortable with my experiments on the page. I remind myself that I've been through this process many times, and when I get anxious or feel any sense of despair about my ability to express emotionally what I've seen, I have around me the evidence of my colleagues, women and men who are writers and whose work I think very highly of that they got through this, and I know I've gotten through this, so the only thing is to press on. I will say that at certain points in doing the research, I will know that this very definitely will be a scene in the book. I could give you an example. In Arctic Dreams, I was on the bridge of a ship, and we were sailing through a field of icebergs in the North Atlantic, and I was saying to myself, well, yes, they're all white, but that's never going to work on the page. Can't have just that one word. And what kind of whites are these? And I would literally write out church linen or the gray and white of pigeons or 
you know, whatever it was, I'd try to write down as many things as I could. And then later, I can use those words in a paragraph about white icebergs, but never repeat the word white. I'm trying to think of another place. Oh, I was with some people once in the interior of Antarctica, and we were pinned down for days at a time in the tents by very high winds. They kicked up so much snow, you could not see more than two or three feet. You could look straight up and see a blue sky, but horizontally you couldn't see anything. There were so many snow particles blowing around. So I was lying there in my uh, sleeping bag and with a parka and my behind my head, you know, to, to sit, like sitting up in bed or something. And I began thinking about words that are used to describe wind. And I grabbed my notebook and wrote down 10 or 12 of them. And I think there is a sentence in Horizon in which I just let that unfurl, the qualities of the wind. So there is a way in which on the road I do write things down and then go back and pick them up. Of course, there are notes that I'm writing. If I hear the music of it, I might write a sentence that will incorporate 10 or 12 ideas in one sentence. You can't make a sentence like that work if you just write it straight. You've got to have music to help you. But for the most part, I wrote Horizon, which is a huge manuscript. It's 198,000 words or something. I wrote that manuscript in a room in the house that my wife and I referred to as the Horizon Room. So there was never a telephone in there. I never took food in there or maybe a cup of coffee or a thermos of coffee, but that's it. It was a place dedicated entirely to whatever this book was and what it was trying to become. In my imagination, the book is slowly becoming a living thing, and it's sensitive to the fact that it doesn't want to be put in the same pile with a bunch of newspapers and shopping bags and napkins. It wants its own clean place. So at the end of every day, I'd gather up the pages of the manuscript, square them up, and leave them by themselves in the middle of a Honduran mahogany table. It was the only thing there, and I felt that that was a gesture of respect to whatever the story was, whatever it was trying to become. For somebody who travels as frequently and as committedly and profoundly as you do, I wonder if you can explain to me your relationship to place in regards to this home where you have lived for almost half a century. Is this a place where you never feel like a stranger? or a place where you do, and is your relationship, your love, your emotions, offering you a certain security that other places do not? When reading your book, I am constantly thinking that the traveler is away from home in some place, and that home remains in the mind or in the heart, and at one point it resurfaces. So your relationship with this house, Barry? The relationship with the house is bounded. It's a building, you know, a story and a half uh, built in 1946, and it has dimensions and temperatures that change through the season. So it's bounded. It's an object, if you will, 
in a larger space. And the larger space is my home, which includes a section of, of a large river where salmon spawn and beavers make their dens in the bank and where elk and deer and foxes and coyotes and bears are always wandering through. So to my mind, it's a very active place with a still building in the middle of it, which is the house. But when I say I miss my home, I don't mean that I want to sleep in my own bed, you know, after sleeping on a on somebody's floor or out on a desert plain. What I miss is the conversation. I have had nearly a, a half century of conversation with everybody who lives within the ambit of the house. And I'm comforted by those conversations. I think of myself as a caretaker of that place. I know that in microcosm, I will learn things there that I don't have to get in the car and go to an airport and find on some other continent. Everything in Blake's sense is right there in front of me. I guess what I'm looking for sometimes is other idioms. How would someone else in another landscape say this thing that is coming to me from the landscape I'm living in? And how can I make the particulars more universal so that a person in Chile might understand more easily the phenomenon I'm trying to describe? So I would say I'm constantly tutored by my relationship with the place I live in. And when I travel, my effort is to enter a tutorial with the land. On my half, I want to be able to ask questions, and I also want to be able to sit very still and open-minded and listen to what I'm going to be told, even if I don't really understand it. I know that some things that I see are remarkable to me and not of any interest to many people around me, perhaps because they're accustomed to it. But what I find traveling with indigenous people is they're paying attention at a level that's impossible for me because I'm an outlander. And if I ask a question that seems ignorant, I have to do that because I am ignorant. What I hope for is that I will have chosen patient people, or I will at least recognize that people are being patient with me. And that helps me achieve. The whole purpose here is to gain intimacy. Let me say metaphorically, the search for intimacy has to be set up by a willingness to become vulnerable, a willingness to look foolish or uneducated. So opening yourself up is the first step in gaining intimacy at so many different levels, metaphorically, of course. But in order to become vulnerable, you have to trust. So I think it's the case that many people never make an intimate connection with a place because they're afraid to be vulnerable to it. Their belief is that the situation can't be trusted. I mean, how many stories have you heard from travelers who say, 
I went into a cafe, and though I was afraid to do so, I struck up a conversation with a man, and, my goodness, then I walked out of that cafe feeling almost like a resident of the village. So that opening up, whether it's done in an urban environment or in a remote and lightly populated by Homo sapiens place, the intimacy is a thrill, and it fills you with a sense of being more fully alive. And ideally what I want for somebody reading Horizon is to feel an intimacy with these places, with northern Kenya and Antarctica and western Australia. I want to get out of the way of somebody's growing awareness of a place that I've tried to introduce them to and leave them contemplating it in their own words and with their own emotions and reactions. Throughout the book, Barry, there is this melancholic or nostalgic or maybe painful recurrence of how much we as a civilization have destroyed. Yes, to what extent places that you have been to many, many years ago and that you now return have been transformed and that we are at the tip of breaking things apart. One oscillates as a reader in different sections of your book between the exhilaration of finding that intimacy with the place and also the suffering that that place will not be there, that it is being dismantled by the very civilization that has enabled you to arrive to that place. And in that sense, it seems to me that Horizon is, is a kind of salvo for a time that is really at the extreme. Is that the leitmotif that you intended at the beginning for the book, or did that come as an image, as an argument, as you were writing it? The first thing I want to say is that is one of the most concise and accurate definitions of this book I have yet heard. And I would like to say, oh, of course it was all intentional. And at one level it was intentional. But when you characterize it as melancholy and, and sad, I have to say that I have heard many people say I was terrified by this book, and also enthralled. And that, to me, is a compliment. I'm not trying to do something to cause some specific reaction in uh, a reader. I'm just trying to say, look at this. What do you think? And the thoughts that people have are very close to the thoughts that you have expressed. I do believe we're living in a time unlike any other in the history of Homo sapiens. We are using up everything left and right. We're killing animals by the tens of thousands because they, too, are trying to make their way in the world and they are getting in our way. It seems to me an enormous bill is going to be presented to us in the next 20 years. No one's going to know how to pay it and many are going to say, how in the world did we cost ourselves so severely by inattentiveness? I would like to think that horizon is an act of attentiveness, and that it's certainly the strongest voice I have ever used in a book, in a work of nonfiction. 
but I believe that it can be successfully done because no one outside a few internationally known barbarians, nobody's blamed. I don't see any point in, in pointing the finger of blame. Our ship is sinking, and if it's sinking because we bored a lot of holes in the hull, or it's sinking because the boat fell apart under the forcing pressure of an enormous wave, makes no difference now. The question is, how do we get as many people as we can into the lifeboats? So what I'm looking for, I think, in Horizon, is there any model other than democracy for us to pay attention to, try to illuminate, so that we can save as many people as possible. I often ask people, stop trying to make common cause with your age mates. Take every bit of intelligence, every bit of imagination that you have in this moment and offer it to young people. Yes, they are inexperienced. Yes, they're too often enthusiastic about the wrong things. But they are the answer to the prayer what are we going to do? They have it within their power to invent something we fail to invent. We have been inattentive, and I think in general youth is attentive. Because they know what's coming for them means them no good. So I've gone off on a tangent here. I apologize. Barry, I also would say that every book, every book one writes, is written at a precise time. It might be the wrong time or the right time, but it is the precise time. That is, it is the moment in which that book was born and given to the world. This, after a long and illustrious career, is also the book of an old man, a man who has been to many places and who can look back and does, in its pages, look back at his own steps, at the footprints that he has left, and also because you have been open about it, of a sick man, meaning an ill man, a man who is suffering of a life-threatening illness and is looking back. Is this the book where you are bringing everything that Barry Lopez has done into this six or 700 pages as a big, loud, and activist, although I use that word with caution, statement. Well, a couple of things there. When I was midway in rewriting the manuscript, you know, third or fourth draft or something, I thought to myself, you know, I've been diagnosed with incurable metastatic cancer, so there's a stop sign on my road. I don't know how far away it is, but it's definitely there. And I warned myself, don't start thinking this is the last thing you will ever write. If you think like that, then whatever comes next won't feel welcome and it won't turn up in your life. So I would say being a terminal cancer patient, that fact certainly has a way of making me ferociously attentive. It puts a bite into the internal energies that generate a narrative. It's like saying to yourself, you've only got 60 minutes here, so what are you going to do with it? This book concentrated my attention more sharply than I think anything before it, and it also tried 
to reach further than anything I've written before. I don't feel old, you know, Ilan. I'm still very active, and my friends tell me I look okay. <laughs> but I, I am aware that my own life has got an end to it, and cancer has sharpened that sense that I've got an end ahead of me. And maybe that's why I, I wrote some sentences in Horizon that are sharper than sentences in other books. But, you know, I want to do all I can to manage the situation that I'm in, and I want to bring every bit of strength and advantage out of it that is possible for me. And that's why I have got these thoughts moving in me so powerfully now to make common cause with young people. Sooner or later here, I won't be able to help using the word activist in the way you are using it, you know, an activist sort of in the background. I guess I generally agree with you. Yes, cancer sharpens the mind. Is there a, an irony, unintended, very maybe here, that we want the young to be able to commune and communicate with somebody like you as a result of so much experience that comes from travel, a sage, at a time when reading is in decline, attention span is limited to just a few seconds, when the act and art of travel has become mechanical, repetitive, and guided, there could have been, and I'm playing here also with the same irony, there could have been other forms to get closer to younger people. Your book wants them to reflect, to meditate, to ponder, to explore and experiment, to thrive in every sentence, in every paragraph, in every page. It's a dying breed there as well. It is, but I can tell you I do have some faith still in the process. People who read critically, who read to go deep, are often very influential in their communities. So a single book can do still a very large effect. And I believe that some people who read Horizon or other work of mine will shape the story that I tell in a slightly different way, in a different idiom, and carry the essence of it on to acquaintances or to students in a classroom or to women and men they work with. So, of course, I could have made some effort at one point to be a musician, and then I might be able to communicate in a different way with young people, or I could have been a filmmaker or something like that. But I think the language actually chose me. I love language as much as I love the earth, and I want to be with it and around it and hear it used beautifully. So it became my métier, where music, the composition of music couldn't, and where I was a professional photographer until 1981, but I couldn't go deep with photography. I knew I could go deep with words, with language as a writer, so that's where I concentrated my effort. And at this point, I am so fully aware that the thing is not the writer. The thing is the story. We don't really need 
the writer, except from time to time in every generation to give voice to truths that we have known for tens of thousands of years. So the thing for me as a writer is get the story right for your generation and a generation behind or ahead of you or something like that. But don't think that you're saying something nobody has ever said before. We're in circumstances nobody has ever seen before with global climate change and ocean acidification and methane gas pouring out of the tundra. We're in a different situation than we've ever been in. But the truth survives and is felt whatever the environment happens to be. And if I can encourage young writers to carry on the tradition, if you will, I mean a tradition that I can trace back to Magdalenian phase Cro-Magnon people in our culture, if you can make a contribution to this ongoing story of humanity, I want to find some way to support you. I don't think storytelling is obsolete in any way, but it's been commercialized to the point of death with the bestseller lists and prizes. And I mean, everybody likes to get a prize. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. It's just the incessant competition to be on some kind of bestseller list that makes me uncomfortable as a writer. We're a, a kind of guild, and our chosen work is to take care of our people with language, the way composers take care of their people with music or painters with line and color. We're a group of people who cares what happens to everybody, and we have our elaborate aesthetics that we like to promote and participate in. But again, we're not the only ones. The things that we want to preserve are the Beethoven Ninth or some story that's been told in 20 different ways for thousands of years. So I'm trying to do my part, and I have deep respect, profound respect, for all people involved in storytelling, from Pablo Neruda, for example, to the people who translate him. It's all one big effort to make sure we don't all drown. There's one moment in your book, probably in Puerto Ayora, about the Galapagos, where you get frustrated with not knowing enough Spanish. You hear it, you want to communicate, you have a number of words, but you feel the arsenal is not enough. And of course, you're explaining all this in a beautifully crafted English. You were talking about language, and you are so careful and reverential and spiritual about the language. Is your relationship with foreign languages... Spanish and French and Portuguese and the languages of Kenya and of the indigenous languages of Australia, the same that you have to foreign places and English is home? It's not only language in general, but the English language, the tool that makes you feel grounded? It's the tool that makes me think I can manage some verisimilitude with what the situation is. I am confident that I can go into a complex and amorphous situation and open it up and give it a definition in English. But I know that 
with high school Spanish or high school French, I'm not saying anything exciting or insightful. I don't have the command of the language. I remember a Navajo man said to me once when I complimented him on his English, he said, oh, I have the vocabulary and I know how to speak about some things, but I don't have the run of this language. And that's the quality I'm talking about, that acrobatic, balanced poise with the words that allows you to make beautiful things one after another with Spanish or any other language. I'm at the stage of a three-year-old with a ball of clay. I have my home language, and I believe the earnest desire to communicate with another human being who wishes to be open carries a lot more than you might first imagine. I remember one time in northern Japan, I sat down with a man. Someone had arranged for the two of us to meet. He was a veterinarian. He spoke no English. I spoke virtually no Japanese. And we were sitting in his home with our feet underneath a table, sitting on the floor with our legs underneath a table where there was a heater. It was a winter day. And we're waiting for the translator to show up. And I reached for a book and opened it and pointed to an animal, a raven, actually. And he said some things in Japanese that I didn't understand. But this went on for 20 or 30 minutes. And we realized our common interest in these mysteries of the fox and this raven and whatnot were so intense that when the translator got there a little bit late, 20 minutes late or something, we waved him off because our desire was to be enthusiastic with each other about something outside the self. And we had done that. We'd done that without having to use very many words, just the rudimentary words that we had. Each of us had, you know, a few words. The exciting thing was a common sense of excitement about something nobody could explain and our recognition of this thing outside of ourselves that it was inexplicable was enough to make you remember the conversation and be glad you had it. Beautiful, beautiful anecdote. Mary, we are reaching the end of our conversation and I have one more question for you. It comes from a line I once read, I believe in a book by Robert Louis Stevenson, where he says something to the effect that there are no foreign lands, only the traveler is foreign. Any reaction? I would go along with that. I think you must always understand, as a traveler, that you're the foreigner, and the only way to make headway is to show respect, to be far more willing to listen than to speak, to never show that you're more interested in learning something from an adult than from a child, to engage with children and play with them. That's how most people think a grown-up behaves, is to engage the children as well as the adults. So if you identify yourself as a foreigner, if you understand yourself as that person, I think as a writer, 
then you know that you're getting off on the right foot. And if you do that and the doors of perception open with the help of the residents of that place, then you can flatter yourself to think your only job now is to go home to your familiar setting where you feel comfortable and vulnerable and try to make beautiful language out of that experience. Barry, I want to thank you very much for being here in In Contrast, but I also want to thank you for writing the book. I have found enormous pleasure in wisdom and have let myself be lost in its pages in a way that really allowed me to see things differently. Muchas gracias. Muy agradecido on my part. I'm very grateful. I want to tell you that I have spoken to a number of people in a formal setting about Horizon, but your insights, your enthusiasm, and your understanding have made me feel that maybe I've written a good book. Yours seems to me an imagination that is informed by a world larger than North America, <laughs> and I'm flattered at your attention to my work. I appreciate it very much. Talking to Barry Lopez, I thought of a phenomenon that has come to be known, sadly, as disaster tourism. People go to places where human misery is at its rawest. In New Orleans, for instance, after Hurricane Katrina, all kinds of outsiders descended on the city. Some came to help, others to document the disaster. In the Lower Ninth Ward, which became a focus of international attention, a small but visible cottage industry sprouted selling Katrina tours, taking busloads of tourists to survey the wreckage. The purpose was to allow visitors to witness the destructiveness of nature. Disaster tourism isn't new. Since the mid-19th century, millions pour into Civil War battlefields. Auschwitz is a tourist destination, and to a smaller extent, so is the Chernobyl nuclear disaster area. In the last few decades, Vietnam and Cambodia have aggressively marketed genocide sites, and the slave fortress where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned for 27 years is now a shrine. All these sites of pilgrimage distill kitsch a German word to denote artifacts or places designed to generate fake emotions. The places might be authentic, but the tourist industry carefully orchestrates the visit to make sure sentimentality is the reward. There are stores where people buy souvenirs and take away memories. They might even bring with them a container to pour soil or other mementos so as to have proof of those memories when they return home. Mark Twain wrote about a visit he made to a Crimean War battlefield in 1867, in which he witnessed people's strange impulse to take souvenirs from the grisly site. They have brought cannonballs, he wrote, broken ramrods, fragments of shell, iron enough to freight a sloop. Some have even brought bones, brought them laboriously from great distances, and were grieved to hear the surgeon pronounced them only bones of mules and oxen. Of course, disaster tourism also dreams big. For instance, you might want to go to the Bahamas to swim with sharks. 
For diving enthusiasts, the company Scuba Adventures promises to up the ante. Its motto is, no one gets you closer. It takes its divers out to sea, baits the sharks with chum, and sends intrepid tourists into the water without a protective cage. Another example is the hotel chain in Bloemfontein, South Africa, called Emoya Hotel and Spa, which invites tourists to stay a few days in a fake shantytown. The rooms are made of corrugated metal, cardboard, and other trash. Outdoor light depends on fires. There are rooms for 52 guests, all for the equivalent of $82. Needless to say, certain features are absent. Crime, from domestic abuse to homicides, food scarcity, and especially overcrowding. In fact, guests experience life rather comfortably. A video at the Emoya Hotel Spa shows the room interior to be, well, comfortable. Or consider the tourist landmark of the Resistance, also known as the Museum for Resistance Tourism. It was designed by Hezbollah in Lita, a village in southern Lebanon. It opened in May 2010, marking the 10th anniversary of the Israeli withdrawal from southern Lebanon. Hezbollah spent millions on it. It attracted 300,000 visitors, not only from Lebanon and neighboring Arab states, but from all over the world. Guides welcome visitors to the land of resistance, purity, and jihad. The primary purpose of the museum, if it is even necessary to say, is to tell the party's own story and communicate its worldview. Kids show up at the park in miniature paramilitary customs. They carry plastic AK-47s. They play inside decommissioned tanks, crawl along barbed wires and into replica bunkers. They can even aim weapons at Israeli uniformed mannequins. There is something odious in disaster tourism. But dismissing its implications is the wrong response, because at its core, this form of travel reveals something we all carry inside. The need to come so close to fear as to almost touch it, while at the same time return home, with a selfie perhaps, to show others the extent of our courage. Are tragedies occurring more often today than before? That is the common perception of every generation. Today's world is out of whack. At any rate, disaster areas around the globe multiply at rapid speed, and so do memorials as well as tourist traps. One is able to walk through Buenos Aires these days with a travel guide produced by the activist group Memoria Activa, pointing to every place where the military junta either tortured or killed people during the dirty war. Taking this tour, the feeling is unequivocal. Horror is among us. Next time on In Contrast. When I think this hybridity or the multiple influences that we're seeing in novels is reflective of the sort of global, somewhat frenetic digital lives that mostly young people are growing up with, that there are images and texts and music and art popping up from all different corners of the world. And in some ways, that's a glorious thing, the exposure and the things that we are able to learn and learning about places distant from us or perhaps right next door, depending on where we live. 
is a wonderful thing. But I do think we have to be thoughtful about the art forms. The role of the novel is not just to recreate daily life, that there is a particular form to it. And you could create a sort of messy pastiche of a novel that is wonderfully successful. But some thought does need to go into what form the narrative should take. Jennifer Acker on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry, Forrest Gander, illustrator Barry Moser, and author Andre Debuse, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.